This is a podcast of two type A girls working hard to untangle the BS stories and expectations related to this illusion of perfection. Life is hard enough without adding pressure to be more, do more, be the best. It's an ever moving target. And so, in an attempt to inch closer to our authentic selves, the vulnerable, messy, and uniquely beautiful, we have decided to push back. Bit by bit, we are untangling society's demands of us, sinking in to our own intuition. If something makes us feel more alive, we're doing more of that. If something drains us, we're gonna practice removing ourselves. This is a journey we hope you'll join us on. Together, we will explore insights, tips, and tricks, all in an attempt to help you uncover your truest, most authentic self. Hey y'all, editing Maddie here. Before jumping into today's episode, I just wanted to give a heads up that we had a bit of audio or technical difficulties in today's recording. That said, we really enjoyed the overall conversation and content, so we decided to keep with things. But as always, we'll continue to work on our quality and we just hope that you bear with us. Otherwise, enjoy. I almost said we're back and we say that at the beginning of every episode. So I was trying to come up with like a more creative way to say we're here. I guess <laughs> they know we're here, right? Like they're pressing play. Okay. But then I'm like overthinking it and planning like all day long. This is how I'll start the podcast. And that just makes it even more awkward. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh God, you guys will get there someday. Um, and I guess they also get an intro from our actual intro. All right. We're just overthinking this. Not surprising. Welcome to here we are. Um, today again, we have Jess back. Um, as a reminder, Jess is a licensed professional counselor and my cousin, she was here with us for an episode about thought distortions, thought errors, cognitive distortion, all the words apply. Um, and we had called that one. Oh, what did we call it? Don't believe. Don't believe everything your brain tells you. That's right. Um, so that was Jess and she's here again and she's going to talk to us about less about our thoughts and more about our feelings today. Yeah. Hi everybody. Uh, so yeah, thought errors, we introduced cognitive behavioral therapy as a framework, which is really heavy emphasis on kind of, um, the way that we're thinking and then the emotions and behaviors that that kind of chain of events leads to. So we're taking a little bit of a different route and we're going to introduce a concept from what's called a, it's DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, right? So if you guys are ever searching for therapists and they say DBT on their website, this is what they're referring to. So we're going to introduce a framework for understanding emotions that I like to call the six core emotions. I just, can we, for like five, not to already interrupt you, but I just did. Um, when you, So you're saying that there's six core emotions. And I think earlier today or the other day, Maddie was texting you and it was like five or six from the movie Inside Out because that is a good frame of reference. That's what I instantly thought of. Yeah, same and concept. did we know there's a new Inside Out coming out? I'm so pumped. And the one emotion they're adding is ang- anxious. <laughs> I am so ready to meet her or yeah. him. <laughs> but anyway. There's no there's no stress on the... I need to watch Inside Out again. It's been a while. I remember them having disgust. No, there's fear. Fear, oh, fear, anger, disgust, sadness, and joy. Mm. So those are kind of what Maddie was rolling with. And then Jess had told us that they're six, and she'll tell you what they are in a second. 
But then when I was doing research, and I just want to, what a range this is. So I was listening to our favorite, Brene Brown. Brene Brown. <laughs> and she said her initial, initial research on emotions showed that the average person, this is mind-blowing to me, mm. the average person out of over 7,000 people could legit only identify three emotions within themselves. And the range was very limited. So any guesses what the three Black are? and white extremes. Oh, I'm they were. So sad. I'm going to guess high energy. I'm going to guess happiness, stress. mad, and stress. Happy, sad, or happy, sad, and mad. Yeah. Okay. Those are what most people could identify was the three, right? So then she digs in this research. She does all this stuff. And if anyone's heard Atlas of the Heart is kind of Brene's dictionary of sorts with stories and all the things um, of emotions. And she actually found a range of 87. It's insane. 87 emotions in the research. And I won't get into it now because Jess tells us there's six, which seems way more digestible than 87. But she just really hounds the power of language and vocabulary when we're talking about emotions and having the words for it to describe kind of how we're feeling. So maybe we will also touch on that and the range and emotions that fall under the umbrellas of the six potentially. Yeah, if I don't, uh, you know, if you guys are listeners that have ever seen like a feeling wheel, it generally is organized where there's kind of, it kind of pieces out, you know, the more and more pieces get added as you go out of the circle. So, you know, they're not to say that you only have six emotions, right? But these are, the secondary emotions are almost kind of combos of these other emotions, you know, I think like, okay. like envy, for example, is like a super complicated, you know, emotion. And so, so, you know, this is one f- framework, this is not kind of the the be all end all of emotional, you know, like I know anger iceberg is like a really common framework for emotions too. So I like to use this because like you said, when I'm working with clients, the average adult does not have a good vocab, right? So I I think this more simple we can get it, the easier it is to say, okay, this is foundational. And now that I have these basic concepts, I know what it feels like in my body. Then I can start expanding to some of the more nuanced experiences. So this is not to be the end of emotional development. This is, this is like a second, third, fourth session I do with clients. This is like a foundational concept of emotional intelligence that we use. Um, yeah, that's a really good like point there, Mac, that it gets, it can get really complicated and it's pretty surprising how little we know about ourselves sometimes and our emotional wellness and why I don't actually like I'm not asking this because I know the answer to it um (laughs) why is it important that we have this vocabulary around our emotions yeah really good that's this is like the essence of this exercise the six core emotions is that emotions they're neither good nor bad they're signals of things so if we don't know what the signal is telling us we're not going to know how to resolve whatever's disturbing us. So use the analogy of a smoke detector. The smoke alarm's going off, sirens are going, there's a fire in the house. If I smash out the detector, the fire's still going, right? So what, what adaptive coping looks like is to say, hey, this is a signal, I hear it, I recognize it, I know what it's telling me to do, and now I know how to go resolve whatever it's letting me know is, mm-hmm. is going on. So you know, all these different emotions are just different kinds of signals. And so what we do when we're not acknowledging our emotions is that we're just breaking out the 
we busted out the alarm, but all the fires are still going. So by using this and we say, oh, I know when I'm feeling this sensation, this is what it's telling me, then we can go take action. Right. Yeah, good point, Maddie. Is that what, is that what your thoughts were of why they're needed to? Well, I didn't really know. That's why I wanted to hear from the expert. <laughs> Just you're the expert, not us. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Yes, I wanted to invite other thoughts as well. Um, yeah, so good build up there. Yeah, so that's the exact framework of this, right? Is okay, I, I do have a tangent to that before we like dig into the actual six. So I had written down, I understand, and I understand because you pre-texted us about three sentences to get us thinking. But initially, I understood that emotions are signals, right? Yeah. Get that. However, the question or the wondering would be, do all emotions require mm-hmm. us to act on them? So we have these emotions, right? And I think we've said in other episodes that the awareness and then action or inaction, right? And so we acknowledge that there are times when situations, thoughts may occur that do not require us to engage. Mm-hmm. Is that the same for emotions? Like there are emotions that we may not need to act on. But when I say act on, I further deviated and I recognize that the action might not necessarily be outwardly. So like I might not take like a physical action on one of those emotions, but it could be acting on it like inwardly, like take a moment to pause and reflect and think about identify whatever it is the emotion that I'm having does that make sense yeah this is like some kind of response in general is that what you're saying yes like yes I understand emotions are signals but do all those emotions or signals require some range of response or not I might I might be at risk of overgeneralizing, but I'm going to say all a signal is not helpful if we're not aware if we're not looking at what it's signaling so what, I mean, we see this, this is what, you know, clinical depression and clinical anxiety is, right? Some of these diagnostic things is that we're experiencing emotions when there's not a good reason to feel them, basically, mm-hmm. right? I know. I was like, God, again, she's calling us out with that anxiety piece. Okay, keep going. Uh, and like, and I too, you know, so I'm not, um, I, I have anxiety too, right? So we'll use the we here. So like, <laughs> I know for me, right, if I'm feeling anxious, I'll pause and I'll say, Mm. And so I'll tell you what the function of anxiety is right here soon. So I'll check in. Hmm. Okay. Is there anything that needs my attention? No. Am I safe? Yes. Do I still feel anxious? Yes. Probably just going to feel anxious today. I'm going to probably have an anxious day today. Right? So do I need to be checking on, on my anxiety persistently, like nonstop throughout the day? That's not realistic. But, but if I know initially that like I am inclined or, you know, depression, man, I woke up sad today no reason is am I having some kind of pain is is there some kind of attachment that I've lost no I'm still depressed okay probably just gonna feel depressed today so again there's initial checking in but that I don't think that that means that we're chronically and just like obsessively checking in if that if that answered that question yeah I'm laughing because it just makes me think like I wake up anxious there's not a reason I proceed to ask myself, did I refill my meds? (laughs) (laughs) That was literally me last week where like Sean reminded me like, um, did you check your meds? And that's not for everyone. (laughs) That was not me (laughs) meant to be (laughs) like everyone should be medicated. That was just my thought. (laughs) 
usually I should be asking myself that question if I'm feeling like that. I digress. Okay, so our six <laughs> core emotions are... Yes. So we got all... Of, so the first two buckets is we have three energizing and then three de-energizing emotions. So that'll be the first kind of bifurcation we make. So the three energizing emotions are joy, anger, and fear. Well, that's surprising. Energizing right? makes you think positive. Right. So we, use, we don't use words positive or negative because emotions are neither good nor bad. We use the words comfortable or uncomfortable. Because once we appraise them as good or, or bad, it can create more distress. But if we know, hey, these are signals, signals aren't personal. They're just information. So then the de-energizing emotions are pain, guilt, and shame. So what I mean when I say energizing or de-energizing is I'm talking about the, like the physiological arousal states of our bodies. So one, the, the energizing, so joy, anger, fear, we're going to have the sensations of like our heart pounding, our pupils are going to uh, dilate, you know, like we're going to get sweaty, um, our breathing might change. So we're having like this like physical arousal that's happening because of these emotions. Mm-hmm. And then compared to the, the de-energizing emotions, pain, guilt, and shame, we have like a loss of energy. You can see people, like when you're listening to somebody talk about something that is painful, like they take up less space, they kind of slouch down, their voice gets slower, their tongue gets a little bit heavier. Like defeat. Yeah, it's that you can watch somebody experience that sensation, right? So when you're, so like, you know, energizing or learning emotion vocabulary one-on-one, you say, is this a energizing? I got these to choose from. Is this a de-energizing? I got these to choose from. So we don't have to look at six to start with. We got two options. We got two options, right? So you're like, is your heart pounding? No. Okay, probably one of those other three, just to kind of simplify that off the, off the jump there. So for each one of these emotions, we're going to go into the synonyms for it. We're going to talk about its function, and we're going to talk about what it's like when there's too much of that emotion and then not enough of that emotion. So what adaptive functioning as opposed to maladaptive functioning. So adaptive functioning is that you know what the emotion is, you're responding to it according to its function, and you're keeping it within an appropriate range. So, because not having any emotions is also problematic. The goal of healthy coping is to not have no emotions. That's what human beings have emotions, we do. That's what it is to be alive, right? So we'll do joy first, and this will kind of go into y'all's, um, tell the viewers what it's, or listeners what it's called on the values episode. Right, so the function of joy is that it, it makes life worth living. So it tells us what's what's enjoyable to us. So these are things, these will signal back values, these will signal back um, helpful core beliefs, these will bring, um, you know, the this is what's going well in, in life. So other words for joy could be like happy, excited, enthusiastic, optimistic. What other words do you guys use for joy? My vocabulary is not great. <laughs> I'm one of those people that doesn't know all the different words to use. But like when we just did our joy episode, I know Maggie was using joy and I kept saying happy. Happy. That's a, that's or like I'm delighted. Delighted. Is that a lot? Yeah. So when there's, which it sounds weird to think that there's too much joy, but this is, this is present at high and bipolar, right? That's what mania is. So too much joy is mania. So this is like the extreme of the arousal state, right? Like super high energy, feeling invincible. Um, We have kind of really limited self-control. We have no regard for the future because we're so focused on the moment. 
right? So too much joy is problematic and not enough joy is depression, right? That's when you see clinical depression. It's not even necessarily the presence of sadness, but it is an absence of joy. One of the um, symptoms is called anhedonia, which just means, it literally means loss of pleasure. I, I, things that used to feel good to me no longer are satisfying to me, right? So that's joy. Questions or thoughts on joy? I don't even suppose it's necessarily a question, but just a thought I have and something I've experienced time and time again is when I am in that heightened state of joy, like falling into the pitfall of being like, everything's great and it will, like, nothing's ever, like, it's not going to change. I'm going to stay here. And it, like, hits me extra hard when, like, things roll around and it's hard again. But exactly like you said, that's life and it's meant to be that way. Like, I'm not always meant to feel super joyful that's actually something called the hedonic effect oh we talked about that yeah i love this concept because it's good to know that it exists otherwise life can be kind of devastating right but basically we do this on both the positive and the negative we we overestimate how impactful something's going to be so we think oh my gosh i won the lottery i'm going to be so excited and just secure for the rest of my life i'm always going to feel this way and about three weeks later you kind of, we hit, it's called a plateau that we kind of like normalize, right? Because a system likes to have balance. And so a system's always going to try to get back to its baseline. Our emotions do that too. You did great, Maggie. (laughs) You introduced this. (laughs) Yeah. We talked about it as like that moment to moment, like fun or joy, but that's not necessarily like at a depth. Right. And it goes the inverted too, where we say, oh my gosh, if my you know, if my partner died, I would be sad for forever and I would never find joy again. We also, yeah. also that's not true, right? You will be hurt there, but we do it on the other end too, where we, we anticipate being devastated a lot longer or more intensely than we in reality do. So we tend to kind of over anticipate emotional states like that. Yeah. The hedonic effect. Yeah. I, I think joy was a good one to start with. Cause I like, um, <laughs> I'm, doodling as we do this and by doodling I mean adding to my notes because I didn't have many I planned on learning here but then I start to draw and then I get distracted and I forget what I was going to say <laughs> oh I think it was helpful this. to start with joy because and my assumption would have been too before you equated to mania that we would this would have been the goal emotion out of the six you named right so I'm like Ooh, I want to steer clear of shame, fear, pain, mm-hmm. anger, guilt. Those sound horrible. Joy is definitely the one of the six. And my initial reaction was like, wow, out of six emotions that negative or positive, and I know that's not what they are, but the connotation, right? Yeah. And so even bringing up how joy at too much, right, isn't necessarily where you want to be either. So I'll be curious to see the good that comes out of these other emotions. <laughs> You know, okay, not, I'm not saying that we should, if there's six of them, not that, you know, 15% of our life we're in joy, 15% of our life we're in pain, right? It, right, right, right. Hopefully most of the day is spent in joy, but there's a lot of other things that could be going on there too. And I, I think joy is probably the most intuitive emotion too. Most people have, know when they're happy, like generally. Yeah, right. Right. So these other ones, I think a little bit more nuanced, which is why we tease them out so much because joy feels much more simple, I think sometimes yeah. than these other emotions. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. This is like a side tangent and also very nerdy of me, but I love the movie Inside Out. I think if you haven't seen it, you have to go watch it. But anyhow, because of how much this topic made me think of it, I looked up like 
a synopsis or like overview of Inside <laughs> Out today. That was my preparation. Yeah. Um, and it goes with exactly what Maggie just said. Like the whole premise of the movie was that Joy is trying to like overtake the whole time and make sure. I don't even know the main girl's name. I should know. Riley. That. Riley. They're trying to make sure that Riley, she, Joy, is trying to make sure that Riley is happy. And so she's trying to override all the other emotions and the whole point in the movie is that it was actually, like, not supporting or helping Riley. She needed to feel those other emotions, too. Man, yeah. And I think, you know, I think even, like, contentment, satisfaction, like, those are also words on the joy spectrum that are more of a, maybe a mild experience. But, yeah, we can't stay in this high arousal state of joy where our heart's pounding and our pupils are dilated. Like, our body doesn't have that much energy, you know? It's tiring to be happy and energized <laughs> <laughs> yeah good yeah you guys have good thoughts on that one next one okay, we are we moving down the line yeah moving down the line so like imagine okay so if you guys were like clients right what you would see is i have this on a whiteboard i'd have all these emotions listed kind of in a column and then i'd have the highs and lows listed on either side of them right we make like these spectrums is kind of okay. how this is organized so if you're visualizing it imagine that right if the, we have like you you know Highs and lows, and then the emotions right there down the middle is how it's structured. Okay. So next one is anger. The point of anger is to give you a voice. So other words for anger can be, you know, rage, pissed off, mad, frustrated, irritable, annoyed. Any other words that you guys use for anger? You name them all. <laughs> all of them. All that have ever been named have been named. Yeah, but the ones, Maggie? Um... No, like it's frustration or no, I think you got them. Did you say frustration? Frustration. I, like when I say the word agitated, like in myself, agitated, I'm frustrated. To anger, okay, yeah, fair, like, fair. Um, I'll use the word agitated okay. sometimes too. Yes, but the point of anger is to give you a voice. So too much anger is when we become aggressive. That could be verbal or physical. And then when our don't have enough anger, that's when we're passive. We don't have a voice. Our voice is not big enough. So when I say give us a voice this looks this is where boundaries come in lots of times when somebody has upset us and made us angry it's because we need to express some kind of limit in that relationship this could also be maybe maybe you should process something that happened in your day maybe you need to talk to another person your support system about another emotion maybe they hurt you and you're feeling angry too so the anger is going to facilitate conversations so when i'm with clients you know, I think especially anger, especially for women, it's, it can be kind of demonized is like this unhealthy, intense or like aggressive experience, but like you have to have anger. It's a good thing, right? Cause otherwise you become a doormat. So passivity is not the goal. And that's why we see like not having any anger is problematic, you know, and lots of times when I'm working with clients who have low anger responses. They, they tend to have a really hard time expressing themselves they tend to be people pleasers. Um, they tend to maybe be martyrs. Those kinds of behaviors go on. And then on the high end would be like what I do with my domestic violence perpetrators, right? Where their voice is just so big. They're focused on their needs being met. The other person's needs are not being met. So we end up like kind of dominating others so that our needs get met. So the appropriate anger is what is assertive communication. And shameless plug, that's what my podcast is about, right? It's called the Assertive Podcast. It's about like using anger appropriately and having like effective communication. So part of anger management is communication skills. You know, it's not just 
anger management or the anger iceberg. It's like you can learn how to talk to people and like talk about yourself, set limits and boundaries. I have so many things clicking. As soon as you said like the function of anger is to give you a voice, I was like, oh my gosh, because I often struggle. Like if I'm looking at my emotions, the ones that I struggle to feel are blanking on my word again. My dictionary is not great. <laughs> express. That's what I was looking for. I struggle to express my anger or frustrations, aka like voicing them. And I 100% experience like passive aggressiveness. And I hate that about myself. Um, and I like realize that's the result of me not communicating better or being able to express that emotion. Do you see that play into boundaries, Maddie? Mm-hmm. As like a need for the boundaries? Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm trying to be that people pleaser and like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to set the boundary or upset anybody and I'll take it as if like I'm helping anybody, but I'm not helping anybody at the end of the day when I'm just like a bitch and I'm super passive aggressive. Yeah. And I think like there's a misconception that anger, oh, well, not the misconception, that anger hurts people. I think anger definitely can hurt people. And I think people hurt people when they're angry, but anger in itself is not a dangerous or hateful state, you know? And, and I think that it can feel really uncomfortable to, cause it is so energizing to, to feel control over that and communicate in an anger state. It takes a lot of practice and it's really difficult to do. So I think you're in really good company there, Maddie. So Jess, you're talking about like to feel angry, right? And so We've talked in a lot of episodes about that embodiment or being aware of how it's making your body feel. And so we did that in the joy and happiness episode. We said, like, how does it feel? And we kind of tuned in and, like, practiced that. So it was like a lightness in our chest or we smirked without realizing it or we took a sigh, like a deep breath. So when we're talking about anger, what may that feel or look like? I like to, um, I think cartoons are, you know, are kind of like caricatures sometimes, so it can be easy. So you think about a cartoon character getting mad, their face gets red, their veins pop out of their head, there's like steam coming out of their ears, they start moving, like Donald does, moving really fast, you're getting agitated. So usually when I have a client, I'll have them close their eyes and I say, imagine something that's made you really angry. Most people describe it like, I feel my, my hands will clench. I feel like a sense of like heat rising. I'll feel like my heart start to pound. And like, you can literally feel this like physical agitation, like an urge for movement is usually like how I would describe it. And, and there's cognitive signals too of anger. Like a big one for me is I call them character assassination thoughts where uh, this isn't just about the situation. I'm now like name calling somebody or I'm making up these really elaborate patterns that have happened. That's like a indication for me like I'm in resentment so it would be both like physiological responses and like mental responses when we're angry when we check in with our mind you know yeah cool other thoughts about anger questions on anger no I was just going to say I love how simplified you're making this I realize it's a complex topic but I it's helpful looking at it as just like anger the function is to give you a voice like it's just breaking it down so much totally it's so like when I'm in session and a client's talking about something that's made them angry and I'm like I wonder who we should be talking to I wonder there's an opportunity there and just so, so your listeners can walk away with practical skills I'll give you kind of two low-hanging fruits on skills when you're learning how to talk about emotions a really easy framework is I feel blank because blank 
Mm. And that's, that's where you, that's your starting point. I feel mad because you didn't pick up the kids when you said you were going to. Okay. That's where we're starting at. We get into the, you, you know, I messages and you language and all that later on and a framework for boundaries. A very basic, your starting boundaries one-on-one is if blank, then I. Boundaries always only focus on what you are going to do because that's all you have control over. Mm. So if blank, then I. So we're starting these really basic formulas. Everybody write it down. Mm-hmm. I feel I because am. if blank, then I. And that's kind of like where I start with anger skills because it's all about communication. Love mm. it. Next one is fear. This will resonate with you guys. Other words for fear would be obviously like terror, stress, worry, nervousness, anxiety. Those are all, when I say fear, it's all on the fear spectrum, right? So this really high arousal state, we have an urge for movement. And I think fear, we can see it, it's instinctually very helpful because it mm-hmm. motivates us to stay safe. So the function of fear is to keep you safe. There's appropriate levels of anxiety. If there's a tornado coming down the street, it's going to motivate me to seek shelter if I'm stressed about that. So there is productive anxiety, right? It's, it's a necessary emotion. Too much anxiety is what, that's paranoia. Not enough anxiety is reckless. So we're trying to keep ourselves from, keep ourselves safe from things that are not threats necessarily, or we have really a disregard for self and we're not doing basic things to keep ourselves safe. So, um, you know, this on a high end of like dysfunction, this looks like PTSD or even like um, schizophrenia has qualities of paranoia at times. And like on a low end of like recklessness, I say this is like the 18 year old boy with the motorcycle kind of experience. It's like how can to do things that are really unsafe. All right. So the function of fear is to keep us safe. So when we're in an anxious state, we kind of check in with ourselves. And the question I always ask clients is I say, what do you think the risk is here? Right. Oh my, I'm, uh, you know, financial destitute or I'm worried about conflict or I'm worried about something happening at work or, or whatever. And so we can figure out what the risk is. Then we know what the threat is and what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. I need to go have a conversation. I need to take a nap. I need to tell somebody no, whatever it might be is the function of that. So if we're feeling stressed and we checked in, what am I afraid of? What's the risk? There aren't any. And I still feel anxious. That's when we get into clinical anxiety. Right. Or, or I'm and there's times it's appropriate to be paranoid. Right. If if or even hypervigilance is a more kind of clinical word there. If I'm in a unfamiliar area by myself late at night, appropriate levels of paranoia, probably. Right. But with PTSD and, and um, you know, schizophrenia, it's when there's fear and anxiety, when there's not uh, sufficient triggers for that. And that's when it gets clinical. What thoughts do you guys have on fear? So we have the function to keep us safe and the practice that we can do here to dig deeper is identify the thing that is at risk or not at risk. Is that correct? Yeah. So check in like what is the safety, what's the safety concern there? For me, what's coming up is also like what's controllable or uncontrollable as somebody that does have anxiety. Um since I was very little, like my anxiety has shown up as like fear of something happening to a family member. And so it's not like confusing. I guess it's just difficult for me because if I'm trying to identify the thing at risk, it's 
them on their daily commute or now I have little nieces and nephews and I see this anxiety coming back up and it's like the things that I'm fearful of are like very real possibilities but I think that like key for me is like what's controllable for me like I can't spend my whole day agonizing and being anxious over this even though it's a real possibility because I can't control it that's a really good point where like the risk could be real and you don't have an ability to resolve it you know that's like I think death is one of those those things mm-hmm. like that's understandable and I and I fear is such a primitive emotion right it's nestled so deep in like our reptilian brain that when we're in a fear state to try to think ourselves out of that is very difficult so what needs to happen first is like a calming of the body so this is where we'll see a lot of like grounding techniques and like mindfulness Right, because if, say, you know that your mom's driving to work and there was this 20-car pileup, and you're like, oh my gosh, right, we're going to freak out. But if we can step back and say, hey, mom's a grown woman, she's been driving, I can't do anything, let me go ahead and exactly. redirect myself. Right, but like if that, if we have to like disengage that like primal reptilian brain to lower that arousal state, because it's so energizing to be right. afraid, you know? That's what so a spiral is, almost, right? It could almost be like a third step. I suppose then if we're identifying the risk, well, yes, that risk is real, but also can I control it or not? Yeah, that's called an internal locus of control. So we're checking in of like, what can I impact? Right. And that could be something, maybe you call your mom and you check in. Maybe you help your mom do repairs on her car so that it feels safe <laughs> or whatever it could be. You know, and then you have to like go of control. Yeah, it's hard. Okay, so I'm hearing you say, because there's moments like this where... I worry about not usually me, but it's like other people and when I can't like get a hold of them or I'm wondering how they're doing and I'm like, I don't live by them. Like I can't go check in and now they're not responding to my messages and that like I get in my own head, right? And make up these scenarios. And in those cases, what you're telling me (laughs) is A, I can't control it, right? Like whatever is happening is happening, right? I irregardless of me but so the only thing we're saying that I can can control and which is probably why it's hard because I'm a control person is those grounding techniques or like how to re-center myself and for me sometimes that is like the breathing or the take a bath or the go do something and then it's often like distracting myself from whatever that thought is and try to get engaged in something else yeah exactly we call this um subjective units of distress so like if you guys have ever been in therapy and they say hey on a scale of one to ten how how stressed are you right now so when you get into really high um levels of distress distraction like is the most effective thing like mag i bet what's going on for you too linking that back to the thought errors is you're probably having a trigger right someone doesn't answer the phone and then you're probably going into catastrophic thinking oh my gosh, I know that she'd answer the phone because she's dead on the floor. No one's going to find her for three days if I don't do something. Oh my gosh, I need to call the police. And do, right, so like part of that too is recognizing, oh gosh, I'm about to go on a spiral. I need to, I need to like reel this back before I get going because I'm going to get fully revved up. And then once yeah, I'm revved yeah, up, yeah. I'm in that high arousal state. The come down is a lot more work than like disengaging before I get on that spiral. That. So, yeah, so that too, and that's hard to do, right? Because you're having, those are thought habits that you have. And so, you know, it's saying, oof, I'm amped up. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to calm down. And I'm going to check in on what I'm thinking about because I'm probably really adding some intensity behind the situation that isn't really in line with reality or what even I know to be true. Yes. 
Good point there. Any other thoughts on fear or questions? I was going to say, that's a good one. It's it's not a favorable one, but I understand the purpose. Yes, it's helpful yeah. to understand. It's helpful to understand. And again, this comes down to distress tolerance too, right? Like we all have different levels of intensity that we can tolerate these emotions at. It's going to quick recap, right? We got six emotions, three are energizing, three are energy depleting, three energy ones, joy, anger, fear. Function of joy makes life worth living. Function of anger gives us a voice. Function of fear is it keeps us safe. Yep, got it. All right. So simple. So simple, right? I know, so we could demystify it because now we have action points for this too. And so, yeah, what I do in, in session is I say, hey, these are the six core emotions. And then we start building up tool belts for each of these different emotions as we go on. So pain is the first de-energizing emotion we talk about. Your voice even got like pain. pain I know, like, right? Pain. Was that on purpose? Like, oh, God, so can't... daunting. All these painful yes, things. Yes, yes. Yeah, having voluntary, huh? Um, other words for pain would be sadness, hurt, grief, loss, despair. Um, any other ones that you guys use? Blue, bummed out. Those, those, the, those are the experiences we're describing, right? We're sad. What a downer. Yeah. Yeah. So the function of pain is it's a healing emotion and it tells us what we're attached to. So too much pain is when we get into like helplessness, hopelessness and despair, hopelessness, hopelessness and despair. Not enough pain is numb. So, and both of you guys have doggies. Some of them have been fixed. I use the comparison. I was pre-vet before I got into therapy and I was working at this vet clinic and they're talking about when you spay or neuter an animal, they go home with some pain meds, especially female dogs because the surgery is so invasive. They have to take it easy for a little while. And if you give them too many pain meds, they don't know that they're hurt and they'll jump on the couch and go sprinting around and acting crazy. So you want them to have a little bit of pain because it lets them know that they need to take it easy and be gentle. That works that way with our emotions too. If my leg's broken, I don't know, and I go try to run, I'm going to cause damage. There's a certain level of kind of like sit the fuck down that has to happen when we're in pain. That, so that works that way with emotionally too. So when we're experiencing sadness, what we need to do is let ourselves sit there and to recognize I've lost a major attachment in life. This is really sad. I've just, someone has died. I'm never going to see them again. I'm going to miss them a lot. That job just ended. I'm going to have to go make all new colleagues. And I don't know where I'm going to get my money from. I'm really hurt about that. You know, so it's, it's deeply uncomfortable because the only way to resolve it is to go through it. So I, I use the analogy with grief. I say it's like a wave and it's going to crash over you and it feels like it's going to drown you and you're sucked up in the current and it's pulling you and then the wave's going to break and you're going to come up for air and you're going to survive it. But it feels like in that moment, like I'm going to die. I'm going to be drowned and suffocated by the intensity of my sadness. And then about 20 minutes later, you've cried your eyes out and you get exhausted and you kind of fall asleep and you feel kind of cathartic for a bit and you come up for air. And then the next day, same thing happens, right? And so what you have to do with grief is you know, it's like when you're sick, the longer you outrun your sickness, the more you stay sick. But if you give yourself time to rest, that's how you heal. So it's acknowledging the loss of attachment and like letting yourself be in that, which is, it sucks that I think, I think people seem to have the hardest time with this one in my observation of people. 
But so this is where that avoidance comes in, right? So numbing, this is where we see like substance use or any kind of process addictions. It's an in, in, in unwillingness to tolerate the sensation of pain and to process those loss of attachments. The question, I'm big on like questions. That's what helps me like identify processes that work. Yeah. The question here is it, I'm feel like I am feeling pain because what, what am I attached to here? Like, yes. Would that work? Yes. So it kind of, it, it signals back to you again, what's like meaningful to you. So can you think like, is there an example that's coming to mind that you want in clarity on? No, nothing was like ringing a bell. I'm just, I do agree that this one is a little bit more challenging in a way um, than the three we've talked about so far. The concept makes complete sense. I'm just trying to see how I would apply it like within my life. Sure. I think, you know, I think heartbreak is a really common experience that's really deeply painful for a lot of people, you know, and so when we're practically going through a, a like a breakup, it's to say, gosh, I really spent a lot of time with them. I had a lot of hopes about that. Let me think about the loss that's gone on here. Let me think about the dreams that haven't happened and the, um, you know, disappointment that's occurred. It's like letting yourself process and like think about those experiences. And then it's a reminder of like, I probably maybe shouldn't date a little bit again because I'm still pretty wounded. And if I go in and jump in the next activity to numb out, I'm probably going to get myself hurt, right? So yeah, that's, oh, we're all laughing. We're like, God damn it. <laughs> Some branch swingers up in here. Oh boy. We're having a moment over here, guys. <laughs> I, do, I do think though, so, okay, relating to that, it's telling you not to, right? But it feels good. So we're on this chase of like finding something that feels better because we're uncomfortable, right? So... In that hypothetical situation of a breakup, I'm not breaking up with Sean. I'm, this isn't about me. I'm just saying, in a hypothetical situation, <laughs> I'm making it feel about me. It's not. Like, in a hypothetical, hypothetical, <laughs> oh, fuck, I'm losing it. In this hypothetical situation where we break up, right, and there requires some pain, right, we need to go through it, we need to process but we may have a tendency then to rush toward that joy that may even borderline on that recklessness or mania almost, right? Because that feels way better and less uncomfortable than this, This um, what do we talk about? Pain. What is the risk there then? So like if I am choosing not to see this emotion and acknowledge this loss and because it's easier to just rush towards something else, then that unresolved, what is that going to potentially transfer to? You know what I'm saying? I mean, generally it'd be that you have unhealed injuries and you're going to risk incurring more injuries and become more wounded would be the over the general risk there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. We're all making eye contact with one another. But common, yeah? Like, that seems like it would be a common thing. Well, totally. And, like, one thing that, and if you'll notice, right, I said the lack of joy is depression. I did not say too much pain is depression. You know? And so when we think about, when we think about numbing, 
right? It's a it's an avoidance. It's like an escape from the sensation. But you can't actually escape. It's going to show up. The injury, like your leg is broken, right? You you taking a bunch of pain meds <laughs> and not feeling a broken leg. That that is what that is. You're not acknowledging that, and you're trying to function as though it is. But like if so, you know that's why people, especially like with tr- with trauma, even and stuff like that, I'll hear people come and say, man, I've been out running this for 20 years. I just need to deal with this. And what normally happens is we overestimate how painful a thing is going to be. So the idea of letting ourselves get crushed by the waves feels like something we cannot tolerate. So we outrun that. Where again, if we, if we feel safe enough to where we say, okay, if you just lose your mind for 20 minutes and you're sobbing like a crazy person in the shower, nothing bad's going to happen. That's going to be very difficult to let yourself do that and give permission to, but usually with a client, once I'm like, you need to cry this out. They do it once or twice. And then I'm like, okay, I don't need to be so afraid of how painful this is. But like we, we are wired as creatures to avoid pain. That's, that's uh risky. That makes us unsafe right? if we're injured. Right. So, so do you kind of see kind of that like that down. people are scared that if they start crying or if they start coping with this or acknowledging all the pain or trauma or hurt in their past or present that they won't be able to stop like if I kind of that can of worms thing right like if I allow myself to actually I'm sure this happens a lot in therapy like if I start to look or you know discover the deeper parts of that pain like I'm not gonna be able to handle it like it's gonna be too much and I'm not going to be able to requ- recover from that. Yeah, as I feel like I'm going to fall apart. I will not be okay if I let myself feel this. Yeah. And, and there are, I mean, there are a little bit, especially in trauma, there are times where, like, you, that could make you unsafe, right? If, like, pain is destabilizing. So there are time and a place to process, right? Like, if you're in the middle of moving in a, in a divorce and your kid started kindergarten, now's not the time to go poking around at what happened to you when you were five. You got some stuff going on, you know? <laughs> Ironically, someone just called me that was about this. Okay, continue. Yeah, yeah. So that- One note on that, like you use the shower example, just hypothetical here. Um, like that feels hard. Um, but like that isn't involving anybody else or hurting anybody else. Like the whole phrase, like hurt people, hurt people. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because and that's what feels... It feels hard because what what hurts is healing you, right? So, like, hurt people hurt people because people aren't crying in the shower. I think if people cried in the shower, we'd probably hurt each other less. It's the function of hiding my pain or not dealing with my pain that causes me to hurt myself or to hurt others. Yeah, and it's not intentional. Like, of course I, not. It's like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to take into all this, I suppose. <laughs> I'm going to use Jess as my therapist here, guys. Yeah, I mean, like, and you like talk about energy deflating. If you watch somebody sob, people will like go on the floor. Like, you like go off the furniture and you kind of collapse. Like, it literally, like it, it, it takes you over, and then, then you get super tired and it stops. Like, the body cannot maintain that level of distress for that long. It's like you're reaching for the wrong tool in this example. Like, you can use the tool of like having the cry, or when we're talking about this relationship thing, or like going to this person that's gonna make me feel happy it's like just not the best tool totally where if instead of reaching out and texting them if you say i'm gonna sit on the couch and let myself sob for 20 minutes you know and then think about texting them after that you know it's like that's what needs to happen right? <laughs> i'm trying to change how i feel 
through external Maggie's things. losing it, guys. <laughs> I think I'm tired. It's just some things are hitting. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, we can move past this one, or I really will. Okay, make a, a so what's next? Session. Guilt? Guilt, yes. guilt or shame? Yes, guilt. I, um, I kind of, I know it's probably, you know, cliche, but uh, I kind of like buddy these together because they both involve rules. So guilt is I've broken a rule that's maybe not mine to uphold or somebody else's rule. Wait, say that again. Guilt is that I've broken somebody else's rule. Okay. And then shame is I've broken one of my own rules. So when somebody is experiencing one of these emotions, I say, I wonder what rule you've broken. This is where you get into like stuff like core beliefs, um, cultural norms, family rules, society expectations, laws, all different things like that. So guilt tells us when we've broken somebody else's rule. So too much guilt is where we become over-responsible. So this is us. I don't know if I froze there. So too much guilt would become over-responsible. So this is where we're taking on rules that are not ours to take on. We're trying to keep everybody's rules. And not enough guilt is when we become... uh, I use one word, my co-host uses another. I use the word offender. She uses the word antisocial. But we mean that in a clinical sense. We're basically, it's like clinical selfishness. We're like, I kind of have a disregard for the needs of other people. I might be inclined to violate the law. I'm going to violate other people's boundaries. I'm not going to respect limits. So this is where we get into like, like an offender. I mean, like a, like a criminogenic place of an offender. So, you know, antisocial personality disorder is a lack of guilt Right, we're doing things hurting people without having a regard for them. Like a clinical sense. Okay. And then shame, right? So guilt says I did bad. Shame says I am bad. So too much shame. You said this last episode. Right. That's kind of like I think that's kind of like the common kind of conception of that at this point too. But you know, too much shame is worthlessness. So I I have no value. And then not enough shame would be like narcissistic. Or like there's an example. I was, you know, in a in a coffee shop the other day doing some admin work, and there's this group of teenagers like TikToking in the middle of the coffee shop, and I'm like, there's appropriate shame that should keep you from doing that because you kind of you're bursting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like again, when people say like avoid shame, these are not bad or negative emotions. There's you need these to function in society. You know if. We didn't care about other people's rules. We couldn't exist and cooperate. So, and there are certain times where like embarrassment or humiliation is warranted. If you break a norm, it's, that's what's going to, the emotional reaction of that is going to keep you agreeable to other people, which we need in our systems, you know. How do we identify if it's our rule we're putting on ourselves or if it's society's rules? And that's, I would say, go to therapy, right? That's a good way of that. But that's, that's kind of the first thing, right? Because in guilt and shame, they can feel, they feel similar. It's kind of that sensation of like kind of wanting to fall. Yeah, of like, it kind of makes you really small, wanting to almost kind of be like swallowed up into the earth, right? Because it, there is social implications to this emotion. So the urge is almost to isolate socially because we violated a rule. So if we, basically, if you want to check in on, we call it inappropriate guilt or irrational guilt is we're taking on ownership for things that are not ours to take on. So it literally comes down to that. If you recognize guilt or shame, that could look like uh, blushing. You feel like you want to isolate. Uh, it's like literally like I want to be like a, fall into a hole and like 
ground sensation. We say, what kind of rules, what rule did I break here? You know? And then from there, we can choose how we most appropriately respond. Like if we have done something that maybe actually warrants guilt, like apologizing for it or doing your best to make up for it. Yep. That's not, yes, to resolve guilt. So if there's not enough guilt when there should have been, we need to apologize, take ownership. Or if the flip end, we're being over-responsible and recognize, wow, I'm taking on ownership for things that are not mine. That's when we go back to like boundary setting, right? Or we check in on our responsibilities. Do we overload ourselves? Are we over-promising? Are we letting people continue to expect things of us that are not reasonable? And then with shame, same kind of things too. I mean, sometimes, you know, if, if you've broken the law or whatever, right, there's going to be other consequences to those kinds of things. But this is where like, um, you know, self-care comes in. Or I say we gain self-esteem by doing esteemable things. So this is like where self-esteem and, and all those kinds of behaviors come in. Um, or, you know, if you're narcissistic, there's usually empathy training is what you would do with that. Trying to understand the emotions of other people and be sensitive to them. I feel like the de-energizing ones are not more complicated, but I have to think about them a little bit more. Is that common, do you find? Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. And I think that they're more, because they are more in the background, like they're a quieter experience, which I think makes them kind of more confusing. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. And we did say, Maggie, you said early on, Brene Brown said there was three. And I feel like those three you kind of talked about are the energizing emotions. I, I was just making that connection. I was like, anger, joy, and, and fear. sadness was the other one, or pain. And on that, on that vein, too, anger is uncomfortable, stress is uncomfortable, but man, they, they can be powerful. You know, we got a lot of momentum behind that. I th- Generally, I think people have a harder time tolerating the de-energizing ones. People are much less willing to stay in a state of pain than they are anger, for example. Or like stress can be a lot more comfortable than like being humiliated, you know? That is, I was just going to say, like talk about how much I like accomplish in a day or get done. And I've had to really, really work at slowing myself down because it's more comfortable for me to experience anxiety, because that is like a clinical default, right? But also like my anxiety is not necessarily paranoia or like worrying about things. It's not being able to slow down for fear of not doing enough, right? And so for me, like anxiety has served me well in a lot of ways, right? But it's also, so it is energizing in a lot of ways, but The flip to that is, and I don't know if this connects at all, but like I end up at times when I was living in that state all the time, like burnt out and exhausted and irritable and leaning toward anger then because that emotion had to spill out in other ways. And so I was either like goofy and happy and really joyful, like if my anxiety kind of tipped over or I was like really irritable and angry and that's the other way that that shows out, I think. Yeah, and like what you're saying, like it bleeds into other energizing emotions too. And lots of times, if we get stressed, it is because we've overloaded ourselves, and so we get angry because we're trying. We need to express limits to somebody. I can't do this. I've taken on too much. I need to. I need to go rest. Not good at that. But yeah, that's exactly where my spillover happens. Is like 
way more often in the energizing. And like you said, it's kind of more normal. But to be in like the anger, joy, and fear, for me, it's like joy, anxiety, and irritability are kind of what I would say like my <laughs> three most common like overgeneralized ones, like what I would label them as. Yeah, that's a good point there. And the my co-host talks about too, she uses this with her clients where lots of times if you're on one a high end of one emotion, you tend to be low end of another emotion. Say that you're really high in shame, worthlessness is very high. You're likely to be more likely to engage in like recklessness because like you don't care about yourself, so you're not gonna keep yourself safe. There's lack of functional um stress, you know. So you you know, mania, lots of joy, lots of times you might be inclined towards narcissism because there's like that disconnect there where like, I feel great. I'm invincible. I can do anything. I'm the shit. So there is like kind of this, the system will maintain some kind of balance. There's only so much energy that can be sustained in there, you know? And I think like anxiety and depression are like, I call them peanut butter and jelly, They're like buddy emotions. Cause if I'm in a super high stress state, my body's eventually going to tire out. I'm probably going to get pretty low energy, pretty numbed out. I'm going to like slow down when I don't mean to. So now we vacillate between these states of like depression and stress because the body is natural that makes trying, a lot of sense yeah level itself out there like, i get really irritable to... when i'm anxious it's a big one for me i'm like already brainstorming we need to uh make the title of this something good because even i like coming into this conversation didn't fully know what to expect and i really struggled to find other podcasts on the topic and i'm like everybody needs to hear and know this it is <laughs> so seriously life like i mean me as a therapist i i it's like essential to my modality but like me personally i use this all I, the time it's, it's like life-changing seriously because it's so easy if, if like once you know you're mad you're looking for conversations that's never a response to anger i would have had before i learned this framework like mm-hmm. that you know is there any sort of like when you're working through this with clients do you have like a go-to thing like is it having that emotion wheel or like how can people incorporate this better into their lives yeah so I think I think anytime you're learning something new I love to start off with formulas and like keeping things simple so I would view this as like a foundational thing so the and I would start with first knowing the function of each one Right, so once you have that memorized, and then you say, okay, I'm going to bust out a feeling wheel because now I'm in the position of being able to tolerate nuance and like a little more complexity. So now I'm going to start using these verbs. I'm going to memorize two new emotional states a day and I'm going to check in on myself. And I'm going to start using the I feel because. So now I can start saying I can communicate this externally to people. So there's like this development of skill sets. Is I don't know if that was maybe too... Vague no, or something no, maybe, but. it makes complete sense. And we will give Maggie a job here. We'll put it in the show notes. Like, kind oh my of. god, I'm sucking at show notes, but I'm I will do you it for it. this one, or okay. even just like the Instagram caption or something. We can list out the six emotions and just at the very least put their function in. Yep, I got you. I can do that much. I can do an Instagram <laughs> post. Show notes, I'm a little unsure of, but we'll get there. We'll get there. And so we, I briefly recap to the high energy. I'm going to briefly recap the low one just for learning. So the de-energizing ones, we have pain, guilt, shame. The function of pain, it's a healing emotion. It tells us what our attachments are. The function of guilt is it helps us follow the rules of other people and of our expectations of other people. And the function of shame is it helps us follow our own rules and our value sets. So helpful. No, right? It's the bee's knees. 
And one thing you could do too, if you're, if you're noticing a lot of shame in yourself that looks like just feeling humiliated, really low self-esteem, something we do called shame attacking exercises where basically you go purposely embarrass yourself because what you learn is like, it wasn't that bad and I can do this. So one time I had a client, this was like in the summertime, it was July or something like that. I had them go to a skating rink with like a Santa hat on and attract a lot of attention to themselves because they had like terrible social anxiety. And something as simple as that of like, okay, I'm choosing to go like invite shame so I can tolerate it because I chose it. And then they can go through that and be like, I survived that. That experience was not devastating. I felt uncomfortable and kind of embarrassed, but then I felt silly, you know? So like sometimes, again, it's like leaning into it of like, you know, because the more, the more private we stay and the more secretive we become about shame, the more shame happens. So I know it, like, I think me and Maggie have listened to a podcast where they just tell like embarrassing stories, right? Because like laughing about it gives some perspective. And so if you're feeling a lot of shame, again, probably need to communicate that with somebody, like bring that shame outwardly because we more internalize that, the deeper set that becomes. You got to challenge that. Well, this was insightful, impactful, incredible. Wow. (laughs) I I was rolling with it. I had two in a row. I was like, all right, two seems, I need to round it out. But this was super helpful. I know for us and will be for many. I think these like formulas of something like emotions that can feel scary or or overwhelming. I think having, like we talked about the vocab and even that basic knowledge makes them feel less intimidating and more accessible. Um, So thank you for that. I think a lot of other people will feel the same way. Yeah. I want everybody to know. Thank you for the free therapy. Yes. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. I like talking about it. She is the expert. Oh yes. All right. Well, we love Jess. And so she'll be back because we have apparently much to learn about a lot of things. So talk to you you soon.